Christmas season is that Jesus came uh, in fulfillment of promises made not originally to us, but made to to the Jewish people, made to the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, and uh, those promises were made through Jewish prophets to Jewish people expecting a Jewish Messiah and that we as Gentiles uh, get the overflow of the blessings of the king of the nation. And, um, and that's an exciting thing. Um, we're, we're blessed this morning to have uh, uh, Ryan Carp with us. He's a missionary full-time with Chosen People Ministries. Uh, He began serving with them in 2004. Uh, Chosen People is a ministry dedicated to reaching, discipling, praying for, and serving the Jewish people uh, with uh, the gospel, helping others to do the same. He leads a number of uh, missions trips, um, including Outreach Israel, a short-term trip for college-age students to reach Israelis and assist indigenous ministries in doing the same. Uh, Also, Shalom Brooklyn, uh, a fast-paced outreach for any people of any age to share the gospel with the Jewish people of New York City. Uh, Ryan is regularly engaged on college campuses in innovating ways to help Jewish people encounter Jesus and endeavors to raise up young missionaries through training and internships. Uh, he has a, a lot uh, of exciting things to share with us here this morning about Christmas through Jewish eyes. And so without further ado, I want to welcome Ryan, if you would welcome him as well. Good. Shalom. That picture was super outdated. I have two little boys. Uh, that was my wife, Jessica, and my son, Ben Zion. We call him Benzi, named after my grandfather. And we also have Yoshi, Josiah in Hebrew. And we're expecting our first little girl in March. So forgive me for not updating that photo. I'm super excited to share with you this morning um, because I saw so many thick, thick Bibles. Like really, not like little ones like this that I carry because it's convenient. I mean like thick ones, like right there. Uh, This gentleman with the red sweater, by the way, we had two red sweaters up here. I didn't get the memo. So there's a red sweater. Okay. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about myself so you know who's talking to you, and then we will get into the story into the message and into uh, this incredible celebration that we get to do in a couple weeks. My name is Ryan Karp. I'm a missionary with the Jew- to the Jewish people with Chosen People Ministries. It is our 125th anniversary as a ministry. And uh, if anybody is interested after today, um, come talk to me because we uh, have an incredible all-ages outreach planned for three weeks this summer in New York City because of the 125th anniversary. We're going to do it big. Um, but we've been around since, since 1894, founded by a Hungarian rabbi who came to New York City because they told him that they knew more about the Messiah in New York. And when he got to New York, he found this book in Yiddish called the New Testament, and he read about this guy named Yeshua, and he had never heard of him before. And he found Jesus, came to faith in him, and then started reaching Jewish people in New York City, and now we're in 17 different countries. I'm the Chicago branch and Midwest regional director. Those are illustrious titles that simply mean I get to reach Jewish people, and I get to oversee and help train other people who reach Jewish people. And it just so happens that Chicago, where I live, is a fantastic place to raise up new missionaries. The only problem that I have is that I don't end up keeping any of them. I end up sending them to New York City, to Israel, to Brazil, to New Zealand. I need to keep some. So if anybody wants to be a full-time missionary and work with me reaching Jewish people, the 300,000 or so that are in uh, the Chicago area, we'll talk afterwards as well. Um, I was raised in Washington, D.C., 
uh, to a mixed marriage household, which means that I have a Jewish father and a Gentile mother. I was always told I was Jewish, um, and my uncle always called me a Jubap, um, which doesn't sound very nice, but uh, until uh, my father encountered the Lord when I was about eight and a half years old, I didn't really associate too much with religion, but I can tell you that in my house, December was fantastic because we had Hanukkah and we had Christmas, okay? Yes, as an only child, Hanukkah and Christmas was fantastic. Fast forward a little bit. My father was invited to a church just out of, outside of D.C. in Maryland where he encountered a Jewish man who said he believed in Jesus, presented a Passover demonstration showing that Passover foreshadowed Jesus as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world just like in Passover, the Lamb provided salvation for the Jewish people. And my father's jaw hit the floor. And that morning in that church, which turned out to be Palm Sunday, because what did we know from Palm Sunday? By the way, if there was a Jewish person in the room, they would have laughed at that. Because nobody says, what do we know from, unless you're Jewish. Thank you. (laughs) Um, A Jewish man that morning gave his heart to Christ. But it wasn't my dad. It was another Jewish guy brought by by another Christian friend. My dad ran to the front, stuck his finger in that man's face, and says, you're dead wrong. Jesus is Christian, and Passover is Jewish, and they'll never mix. Anybody done that to you? Pastor? Not yet? Sounds like a challenge. Okay. (laughs) And so my father set out to prove this man wrong, uh, and over the course of a few months, he couldn't do it, but he started reading the Bible uh, for the first time since he was about 13, and he had his bar mitzvah. My father was raised pretty religious, um, but after a few months, my father realized that the Messiah of the Jewish people had come, and his name was Jesus, and his people had missed him. I came to faith about two years later, uh, watching one of those cheesy animated Bible videos, probably because I was grounded, and I could only watch those, but I'm still showing those same videos to my kids, which they love, which I'm so happy about. And then um, I was a teenager. How many teenagers do I have? Okay, that guy's lying in the back there. <laughs> Okay, so the teenagers are embarrassed and won't raise their hand. Great. How many people have a teenager? Okay. How many people have been a teenager? Very good. Participation, guys. Come on. How much do teenagers think they know? How much do they actually know? Aww. That's why the teenagers didn't raise their hands. And now I've lost all of them for the rest of the message. Um, to be fair to the teenagers, though, as I grew out of my teenage years, I was surprised at how much my father learned. Thank you for some of you who got that one. All right. Um, I was a typical teenager. I didn't want much to do with God. I didn't want much to do with the scripture. I wasn't stupid enough to say he didn't exist. I just wanted the life that I saw on TV and movies. And when I pursued that, it only ended poorly. And to make a long story short, I find myself depressed as a sophomore in college, yelling profanities in a townhouse development in suburban D.C. at the top of my lungs at 2 a.m. And when you're an, um, an insecure teenager and you get the cops called on you because you're yelling horrible things at 2 a.m., it just, it's the worst. <laughs> And so I told my parents, I said, I can't keep living like this because my grades were sinking. I was alienating uh, my friends. And uh, 
they introduced me to a friend of theirs who discipled young men, and for the first time, I really started reading the Bible at the age of 19, and it changed my life. And to make a long story short, I decided to go on a trip with Jewish people from my college. It was a free trip to Israel. And I said, this is fantastic. And I said, if they don't ask, I'm not going to tell that I believe in Jesus. And then I broke my own rule. About four days in, I offered that I believed in Jesus. Um, They started yelling at me with profanities. And the next day, I was told I had to leave the trip. I asked why, and they never told me. But I think it was obvious why. I was sent home, and the first thing my father asked me is, are you angry at them? And I said, Dad, they're not them, they're us. I I grew up Jewish. I know I'm Jewish. My sons, both of them had a bris. And if you don't know what a bris is, Google it, but be careful. Um, B-R-I-S. I was married under a chuppah, under a wedding canopy. I don't eat pork and shellfish. I'm Jewish. Like, I grew up Jewish. When we go to funerals, I know exactly what to do, you know? I know that they're not them, they're us, Dad. I said, I'm not angry at them, but I I just don't understand something. Why in the world would they reject me? And it was that moment that changed my life. Maybe you've had that. Maybe you've had that burning bush experience where nothing going forward is ever the same. I realized that they, my people, didn't reject me. Once again, I had personally experienced something that all Jewish people seem to sort of just know innately that Jesus is too far. They didn't reject me. They rejected our Messiah. And I was the evidence of him standing right in front of them, and for some reason they couldn't have that. So they kicked me off the trip. And that is the moment my heart broke, and I wanted to reach the Jewish people with the gospel. And so I said, enough of the degree that I'm doing. I'm transferring, going to Bible college, and then to seminary. And so for the past, like, 100 years, I've been reaching Jewish people with the gospel. Um, and this season is incredible because like two weeks ago, we started with Hanukkah outreaches on multiple campuses. I initiated not only in Chicago, but also in New York City and Long Island and uh, New Jersey and Philadelphia. You have to say New Jersey. You can't just, you understand. Arizona, Phoenix. So all over the place with our staff, we've been, you know, even Hanukkah is a great time to do this. Did you realize that Hanukkah is only mentioned in the New Testament? It's not mentioned in the Old Testament? In the book of John, Chapter 10, Hanukkah's mentioned, Jesus claims to, be the Messiah, claims to be God, which is a super no-no in Judaism, and it's the holiday where the Jewish people overthrew a king who claimed to be God. So that's pretty good. Um, it's an interesting way to share the gospel. But this Christmas is also an interesting way uh, to share the gospel. Tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon, I would love it if you would pray, because I'll be sitting down with a bunch of uh, Jewish seniors and probably a bunch of Gentile seniors as well, all who don't know Jesus, and I get to present sort of the things that I'm sharing with you, this Jewish message of the Jewish Messiah being born. So let's get started. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. pastor said I had to be done by 1245, so I want to... Good. Glad you're awake still. Matthew chapter 1. Now here's the thing that I don't want you to ask me when we leave here. So is this what you do? Meaning, do you come to churches and speak to Christians about the Jewishness of their faith or the Bible? Because I believe in Jesus, guys. Remember this. The answer is no. This is not what I do. I mean, technically, yes, I'm doing it. But what I do is I come here to share this stuff with you 
And hopefully you guys partner with me in many different ways when I go back to areas with admittedly maybe a larger Jewish population uh, to reach Jewish people with the gospel. And I'll tell you about all those, all those ways that we do that in a little bit. But keep in mind, I'm a missionary. My heart and soul bleeds sharing the gospel with Jewish people. If you ask my wife, when there's a Jewish person in the room who doesn't know the Lord, what am I thinking? It's, Lord, how can I share with them? How can I talk to them? How can I engage them? So, Going to Matthew, this is one of the most Jewish stories you could ever think of. Now today, in Judaism, you would never think that, because Judaism's view of the Messiah is very different than it was 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. But this is so Jewish. When I read this, I can't help but think, how do people not see this? And when I read this with Jewish people, they go, wow, this is more Jewish than I ever thought. Because let me tell you this, everybody thinks they know Christmas, Right? Do you think you know Christmas? You've seen Christmas songs up here. I'm not, I'm not hitting you guys. Come on. <laughs> Help me out here. Let's have a little Christmas quiz. What did, the, what did the angels sing? Okay, they do know Christmas. <laughs> That's right. They didn't sing, or at least we don't think they sang, because we, we have this song, Hark the Herald Angels. But it doesn't say that. It says they said Okay. All right. Hark the herald angels said. It doesn't. All right. So let me ask you another question. Over which city did the star appear? Nope. Sorry. It's a trick question. But you sort of already knew that because these people are... Nope. Nope. Jerusalem. Where did the Magi go? Why? There was a king there, and it says later on in the chapter that the star moved over the manger. Isn't that, it's a traveling star. Pretty cool. All right, last one. Magi number one gave Jesus what? Magi number two gave Jesus what? Magi number three gave Jesus what? All right, you know what I'm talking about, right? All right, so it's also a trick. How many magi were there? We don't know either. So the point is, we're going to look, hopefully, at Christmas with fresh eyes. You guys are really Bible astute, so that's pretty interesting. Most people don't get those questions. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You've got to stop right there. Now, you may not know why. That may be something you skip over. But the word genealogy is used way back in the first book of the Bible, in the first few chapters. It's the word toledot. It sounds exactly like where the, you know, how the Hebrew Bible starts, how the Old Testament starts, the Jewish Bible. And so these are the generations of, that's exactly what Genesis says. So the beginning of the New Testament, the writer Matthew wants this book to sound Jewish. And so anybody who starts to read this goes, oh, I've, I've heard this in the book of Genesis before. This sounds familiar to me. Not only that, but he attaches this guy, Jesus, the Messiah, to two people who were huge in Judaism. King David and Abraham. Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. King David, the one we are all looking for, at least we're looking for his son. Verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Not only Abraham, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no mistake here. It's not Abraham and Ishmael. 
You know, it's not Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This guy is Jewish. That's where we start the genealogy. Make no mistake, the story that Matthew is about to tell has to do with you if you say you are from one of the tribes of Israel. Now, he mentions Judah here. Really, really important. I'm not going to make you turn here because I'm going to do a lot of page flipping. But if you turn back to Genesis <coughs> chapter 49, we get this, one of these first few prophecies about the Messiah, about how a scepter will come out of Judah. It will not depart from Judah, it says. Genesis 49.10. What does a a scepter remind you of except a king? So way in the first book of the Bible, way back, you're promised a king. And so we mention Judah because everybody in Judaism, everybody knows that the Messiah comes from the line of Judah, right? We're waiting for the lion of Judah. So we're waiting for a king, and this story tells about a guy who was born in the line of Judah. Look at verses 5 and 6. Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, this is sort of an interesting two verses also, because in Judaism, these people loom large. You have Ruth, not Jewish, right? A Moabitess. In the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, it says, cursed is a Moabite, someone from Moabite, from Moab. You have uh, Rahab, who was a harlot, and God saw fit to use her to bring the Jewish people into the promised land. And then you have King David having Solomon by someone who's not his wife. Now, if you wanted to make this really pristine and clean, you don't include these people because this is where things mess up. But I almost find it encouraging that throughout Judaism, throughout history, throughout the Bible, God uses people who are not perfect all the time, including in the line of our Savior. I think that's encouraging, just as a side note. And then finally, we get to this guy, King David. Why is King David so important? We understand why Judah is important, because the king will come from the line of Judah. But keep your finger in Matthew. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel 7, starting with verse 12. after Genesis. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. God is speaking to King David. By the way, God loved David's heart, but David was definitely a flawed man, and yet God still used him. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, meaning you die, I will set up your seed after you, meaning your line, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So it's, make no mistake, it's going to be a son of David. A son of David. Could be a grandson, could be a great-great-grandson, but it would be someone from the line physically of David. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, wait a second now. We're going past just a normal guy here. We're going to somebody that's going to be somehow eternal, I mean, this is what we call the Davidic covenant. This is the promise that 
Jewish rabbis for centuries and Christian commentators understand as indicating the Messiah will come not only from Judah, but now from the line of King David, an eternal king. So we have the scepter of Judah. We have an eternal king from David. He show, uh, Verse 14, I will be his father. So you get this sort of idea, and this is really important in Jewish missions and Jewish evangelism because I am told so many times, God doesn't have a son. God doesn't have a son. There are so many places in the Old Testament where God has a son, believe it or not. This is just one of them. He will be physically a son of David, but he will also be a son of God. Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. This is the reason that Matthew is attaching this baby born in Bethlehem to King David. He wants the reader to understand that this is both the king and the Messiah from Judah and from King David. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Again, we, we find David. This time Luke is writing it. The virgin's name was Mary. Look in verse 31. This is what he says there. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. So again, Earthly son and also son of God. This is super important, super, super important in Jewish evangelism. Because one of the issues is God does not manifest himself as a man. That's what the rabbis say. Now, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, God manifests himself as a man a lot. But this is one of the problems that Jewish people have with Jesus. The Rambam, Maimonides, one of the greatest rabbis that ever lived, said God is incorporeal, meaning God does not have a body. The Old Testament says differently, and so does the New. <clears throat> he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and over his kingdom there will be no end. This is what the expectation of the Messiah is. It's an expectation of a king. The expectation that the Messiah comes and overthrows anybody that is oppressing the Jewish people. When Jesus came into town on Palm Sunday and people hailed him as king, that was what they were expecting. I wonder how many of those same people probably turned their back when he was crucified. That's what the people expected. Turn with me back to Matthew 1. In Matthew 1, verse 21, it says this, you'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his people <coughs> from their sins. You'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. I was sharing this with a group of elderly Jewish women the other, uh, last week, actually, and this 93-year-old Jewish woman grew up Orthodox Jewish in Chicago. She says, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, you're totally right. It doesn't make any sense at all. 
You'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his... What does that have to do with anything? Because the name Jesus doesn't really mean anything. The name in Greek, Yezu, doesn't really mean anything. It's not until you get back to his Hebrew Aramaic name, Yeshua, where it starts to make sense because Yeshua either means salvation or the, Lord's, the Lord saves. So it makes sense. You'll call his name Yeshua because he'll yesha his people from their sins. All of a sudden, that starts to make a little bit more sense. In addition, we're told that a virgin would conceive, which is impossible, but I don't know if you've noticed, God is in the business of impossible births. Have you noticed that? Sarah, Isaac's wife, Jacob's wife. I mean, all these people, miracle births all the time. Now, this is the first one with a virgin, but in Isaiah chapter 7, we're told that a virgin would conceive and you would call his name Emmanuel. Well, if you look at the word Emmanuel in Hebrew, it's not really a name so much as it is a title. You'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. So God would be with us when a virgin would conceive. It's pretty amazing how much the story of Christmas ties back to everything that we were expecting, everything that we were wanting, everything that we were waiting for, everything that we thought we needed to overthrow Rome. And yet we get this little baby. We didn't get somebody riding on the clouds of heaven, which we were expecting from the book of Daniel. Not yet, anyway. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. You have to ask this question. I mean, it's like that Jewish lady asking, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus, because he'll save his people. Why in the world would you see a star and think this signifies that the king of the Jews was come? It doesn't really make sense unless you know the scripture. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 24. Everybody's favorite book, Numbers. <laughs> Pages worn thin. By the way, Numbers much better than Leviticus. Numbers chapter 24, this, this guy Balaam, who's essentially a wizard, <laughs> a wizard or a warlock, is hired by Balak, an enemy of the Jewish people, to curse the Jewish people. But every time he opens his mouth, what happens? Blessing, right? Praise to God. This is his fourth oracle. Every time he opens his mouth, remember, blessing comes. This time, prophecy comes. Verse 17 uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter. Again, the scepter thing. Two books before, we see the scepter of Judah, right? The scepter will not depart from Judah. This time it says, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Remember, scepter is for kingship, dominion, power, majesty. And what does he do with it? He batters the brow of Moab and destroys the sons of Tumult. No wonder my people, if they believe in the Messiah, which by the way, not all Jewish people still believe in the Messiah or they've changed the idea of it, but if they believe in the literal Messiah as given to us by Scripture, they're waiting for a king who comes and destroys the enemies of the Jewish people. Now this is not a political thing, but I don't know if you've noticed, the Middle East is not necessarily a safe place for the Jewish people, although they live there they grow, 
I'm an, actually an Israeli citizen. My entire family is. Um, this morning, you know, Sunday's a work day in Israel. So this morning I got here early and I was working because one of my counterparts in Tel Aviv was working. But it's not necessarily safe. You have to be on high alert at all times. Everybody serves in the army. No wonder the Jewish people want protection. This isn't the first time. We've wanted protection throughout our existence because enemies come and try to defeat the people that God is going to use to bless the entire world. But we have these magi who look for a star, see a star, and decide it's time to travel from the east to find the king because I think they knew this prophecy of the star that rises out of Judah. No wonder, because the king is going to reign from the capital of, of Israel, Jerusalem. Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem. Why? Because he didn't want a new king to replace him. Now keep in mind, Herod's not Jewish, although the Romans basically said, yeah, you're kind of Jewish. He was actually from Idumea, which was just outside where like modern-day Petra is in Jordan. It's not really modern Petra. It's really an archaeological site. Um, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Christ. See, this is a guy who was awaited where the Messiah was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, not, are, are you not the least among all the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And in Micah 5.2, the quote, which is this quote, it adds, and his goings forth would be from eternity. Which means there's a king who's going to come out of Bethlehem, this little know-nothing, no-name town, a couple miles from Jerusalem, who was somehow going to be eternal. This is, again, one of those promises like, you know, I'm going to establish your kingdom, David, forever through one of your sons. When I talk to people about, uh, talk to Jewish people about something like this, like Micah 5, 2, well, you know the Messiah is going to be born where he's going to be born, right? And they say, no, where? And I say, Bethlehem. They go, well, that can't be. I said, well, let me show you the Hebrew scriptures, the, the, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament. And they go, well, that, I, they got nothing to say. So no wonder Herod's guys knew exactly where the prophet was supposed to be born. It says it right in the scripture. Now, this is where the star moves, goes over the manger, and the magi uh, go there. Turn with me back to Luke chapter 2. We're almost done. Believe me, I could go on, but I won't. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. We read this actually already today, but let me highlight something. Do you notice that the announcement of, of the birth of Jesus is told to many, many different types of people? You have King Herod finding out. You have wise men, magi, who are able to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles. You have now shepherds. You have a virgin, probably 14, 15-year-old girl. You have Simeon later on. I mean, there's so many people of all different walks of life. No wonder when the angels say, uh, when, when the angels talk to them in verse 10, it says, I will bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. It's interesting. Yeah, the Jewish people, God promised lots of things. But it's interesting that Simeon says when he, when he holds, I mean, can you imagine holding baby Jesus? 
you pick up baby Jesus somehow in the spirit, you understand that this is the consolation of Israel. This is the joy of the Lord. This is the Messiah. You pick him up and you go, the, one of the first things you says is, he'll be a light to the Gentiles. What? The Jewish people aren't expecting a light to the Gentiles. The Jewish people are expecting a Jewish king savior. But not only a Jewish king savior, remember someone named Yeshua who would save his people from their sins. So you have a king and a savior. Most Jewish people don't include that savior part, the savior from sins part today. But in Luke 2, starting in verse 8, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, don't skip over that. There's a reason they were doing that, okay? And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before him, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, what's super interesting here is the location. Bethlehem, Bethlehem. You go, yeah, you already talked about Bethlehem from Micah. But I want you to understand that way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 35, uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel, dies. And she's buried in Bethlehem, a place where there is something called Migdal Eder. Migdal is tower, Eder is the flock, tower of the flock. And as you, as you go throughout scripture, you start to find out that Bethlehem is there almost for the sole reason of raising sheep, of raising lambs. King David, what was his profession? Right, before king, I mean. <laughs> he was a shepherd, and he's from where? Bethlehem, the city of David. Turn with me to Micah chapter 4, verse 8. We get this tiny little promise you see in Micah. It's so interesting. The tower of the flock, Migdal Eder. Micah chapter 4, verse 8. It says, and you, what does your Bible say? And you what? Tower of the flock. Does anybody say Migdal Eder or Watchtower or something like that? Tower of the flock. In some Bibles, it will say Migdal Eder. Sometimes they don't translate it, especially in Genesis. Um, But it turns out there's so many sheep in Bethlehem that they have something that is notable to the surrounding areas. They have a tower. You know, it's not like building a tower today. Building a tower in ancient times was complicated, okay? You had a tower so that you could see your entire flock. You weren't necessarily only walking among them. But it says, you, O tower of the flock, it's the second time we hear uh, Bethlehem mentioned, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. It's interesting that you would call Bethlehem, this little city, the stronghold. To you it shall come, even the former dominion shall come. Now, your, your translations may be a little bit better than mine. I'm not a big fan of this one. Um, but essentially, it's like kingship will come out of you. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. You get this tiny little promise that from a place with a tower that watches over sheep, you will get a kingdom. It makes sense if the king of all of history and humanity was going to be born in this little humble town. Bethlehem was the perfect place 
for the Jewish Messiah and the King of Israel and the King of the world to come from because it was known for raising sheep. Sheep that were used specifically for Passover. Passover, you had to get a lamb and slaughter it in Jerusalem. Only a few miles from Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And what did John the Baptist call Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul called him the Passover or the Paschal Lamb. He's the Lamb, but it also says that he would be the shepherd. It's really interesting that Bethlehem is the perfect place for the king, the shepherd, and the Lamb to come from. Lastly, Luke chapter 2, verse 21. How Jewish is this? Luke 2:21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus. By the way, if you want to know what bris is, that's what bris is. <laughs> Nobody likes a good bris joke in the morning, I guess. <laughs> the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. He's circumcised like every other Jewish male at eight days. His mom goes through a purification process just like was commanded by God through Moses and he made a sacrifice, something called pidyon haben, the, the, the consecration or the dedication of the firstborn. It was everything that a Jewish boy was supposed to do. And if a Jewish person read this today, they might not recognize the purification part unless they were Orthodox. They wouldn't recognize the sacrifice because we don't have a temple, but they would definitely recognize the bris. It's a hard day for a mom, but a very proud day for a father. Take it from me. My, my wife is sitting here kind of crying, and I'm proud because he's joining his people in the covenant. And lastly, I want to read Simeon. He holds the baby Jesus in Luke chapter 2. I'm reading Simeon because I love it. In verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your Yeshua, your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And by the way, this was predicted way back in the Old Testament, that the salvation of God would be found by people who weren't even a nation, meaning non-Jewish people, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Imagine holding the Messiah in your arms the moment you've waited for. We're talking about joy this morning. There's probably no one that could have understood this joy more than Simeon, who was promised to see the Messiah. This is the Jewish side of Christmas. It's a Jewish message of a king who came in an unexpected way and also a sin savior, attached to David, attached to Abraham. There couldn't be a more Jewish boy born. Pray for me and pray for the hearts of uh, the women and men that will be attending. Most people forget about reaching senior citizens, but... Uh, they're incredibly open, and 12, 15 of them sit down and listen and interact tomorrow. Uh, so be in prayer for that. Before I close, I want to do one more thing with you. Take this out, please. We're going to do an ancient Jewish tradition. Open it up. 
we're going to do something called the tear-off. Okay? <laughs> so there's a little perforated slip on the end. On the count of three, we're all going to tear off together. One, two, three. Very good. You're all Jewish. <laughs> now you're bris. I can't put it away, right? Um, like I told you before, I'm a missionary with the Jewish people, to the Jewish people. Um, my goal and my heart is to reach Jewish people with the gospel. We do that in lots of different ways, from reaching out on college campuses, to holding uh, evangelistic Bible studies, to planting uh, Jewish-friendly congregations, um, to reaching senior citizens in Bible studies, to doing something called VHS, which is Vacation Hebrew School. We teach them Hebrew, and we teach them Jesus. So um, there's so many things that I could tell you about but I would ask you to pray for a guy named Todd, pray for a woman named Hannah, 98-year-old Holocaust survivor born in Germany. Um, <laughs> I talked to her two weeks ago, and I said, why do you come to these Bible studies? She says, nothing else is offered at this time. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. She goes, but I'm enjoying it, in thick German accent. I said, well, what do you think about God? She goes, I don't believe in him. I said, why? You know, speaking loudly the whole time because she can't hear very well, nor can she see very well. She says, you can't have been through what I've been through and believe that God exists. I said, listen, I don't want to minimize it. I've been to Auschwitz. I've been to Birkenau. I've been to Theresien. I've been to camps. I've been to Germany. I've been to Poland. To only some degree do I understand what you're saying, but I've, I don't want to minimize it, but I want you to understand something. She says, what? I says, the fact that you're sitting here and the fact that I'm sitting here demonstrates to me that God exists. Meanwhile, there's a, a Gentile woman and another Jewish woman, 92 years old, sitting and listening to this whole conversation. Both don't believe in Jesus. And she says, well, how does that prove God exists? I said, God told us that unless somebody could search out heaven and count the grains of sand and the stars in the sky, that the Jewish people would always be there. So many people have tried to destroy us that if God wasn't with us and preserving us, someone would have succeeded in fully annihilating us. The fact that we're here is proof that God exists. She had nothing to say about that, but I could see she wanted to get up, and I have to pull out her chair to help her get up to her walker, so I did that, and you know, I put my hand under her, arm, uh, her arms, and I help lift her up, and she gets on the walker, and she says to me, you know, so she was trying to be smart. She says, you know, some people would say that God told you to help me, you know, get up out of the chair. And I said, yeah. She says, but I would tell them, no, that was just a courtesy. You were just being nice. And I looked at her and I said, Hannah, if it wasn't for the Lord, if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't pick you up out of that chair and I wouldn't even be here. She says, why not? I said, because without God, I'm far too selfish of a person. It's because God loved me and died for me in his son Jesus and because he loves you that I love you and I want to come here and bless you. You know what she had to say to that? Nothing. Pray for Hannah. 98 years old, not too late. If you'd like to get more information and understand how you can pray, we send out monthly uh, prayer letters. Fill this in legibly. Give this to me before you leave today. Uh, I would really appreciate that. There's no financial obligation with that, although if you'd like to make a gift, you can also do that. We are supported um, by like-minded um, parishioners, churchgoers, churches. Um, so if you'd like to partner us with in, in another way besides prayer, you can do that as well. I've taken too much time. Let me pray.
Avinum Vimalkenu, our Father and our King, we bless you and we honor you. We are so joyful and happy to be bringing in this time of year where we can remember the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the King. And we, find, we do await the day, Lord, when the King will come, when the King will ride on the clouds of heaven, when we finally uh, get to see sin abolished. But until then, Lord, let us proclaim, let us say and let us even sing, unlike the angels, that, uh, <laughs> that your Son came and died for us, and not only for us, but for the people who have yet to know you. Father, I also ask that this would be a tremendous time for the people in this room to share with their friends and even with Jewish people. I pray that you would bring Jewish people across their paths so they would have the opportunity to share the joy that they have in your son. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.